Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. When we got to the emergency room, um, I was like, I think I tore my Achilles tendon. And they were like, yeah, that's a really common injury for middle-aged men. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know any of those. I, I wouldn't know. So the warp wall is, uh, is legit, and um, I need reparative surgery now. So uh, props to all you young people who can get up that thing. Uh, you, know, the, this, you know, can I talk for a second? This is a crazy thing. This is the second time I've injured myself hanging out with teenagers. And I really should be over this by now, but I'm not. Hey, be patient with me. I'm not on um, anything but ibuprofen, but I'm not also moving from this chair. So, we good? All right. So, we have been having a great time. That was so great. RVR, I love what you guys do here creatively. I absolutely adore your minds, the way you're constantly restoring the gospel, that you're just constantly entering into that beautiful tension that we need to encounter. And, man, that's the language of the heart. It does something to you when you can feel it. You hear him talking about it? I think it's just awesome. We've been talking a lot uh, this week. What's the Hebrew word I taught you this weekend? Chesed. Okay, this is important because um, I have a long story to tell you, and uh, I don't have time to do it, but, but hear me on this. Um, we've, been, we've been talking a lot about this extravagant gift of God's unfailing love. That even though we fail, he is unfailing. Even though we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. Even though we wander, his pursuit of us never wavers. He just chases us. He comes after us. He seeks us. That he's a better savior than we can possibly be sinners. And I really believe this, but I need to talk to you for a minute because something's happened in our culture. When we talk about grace, we've made the mistake of making something that comes to us free into something that comes to us cheap. And just because it's free doesn't mean it's cheap. There is an incredible cost. There's an incredible price that was paid for our brokenness. And until you can get that, I don't think you are ready to really respond in faith and respond in love because you'll take for granted that which is the most extravagant and beautiful thing you have ever been given. Um. So we have to tonight enter this tension between, between grace and justice. And it's a really uncomfortable place to, to, to be, but I want you to find the courage to go there with me. Justice is a hard word. Uh, you don't really want justice for you. I, mean, I just want you to think about this for a second. You, you only say that's not fair when it goes against you. You never say that's not fair when it goes for you. I mean, when you're circling the parking lot in your car, and, and you get that spot right up close, none of you ever say, God, it's not fair. That guy on crutches deserved that spot way more than me. No, what you say is something so narcissistic as this. You say, Lord, thank you for the blessing of this parking spot. You don't care about fairness. You don't care about justice if it benefits you. 
but here's what I need you to understand. Broken hearts, messed up stories, pain, there's always a price to it. Uh, my family, two years ago, moved into a house, and uh, everything was great. It was like our dream home. We worked our butts off to get ready to for this, buy this house, and we were excited to start you know, the next chapter in our lives. There, We had three kids now, and place needed to get a little bit bigger for them, and we moved in, and all of a sudden, we had this mysterious problem with our, our, our baby. He, he, at that time, was four years old. His name is Dietrich, and Dietrich became sick, and we couldn't figure out why. I mean, like, really sick. Like, he lost almost a third of his body weight, and he stopped talking, and he stopped walking, and he just was, like, regressing, and, we're all, and everybody's trying to figure out what's going on, and we saw all these specialists and all these doctors over the course of about two months, and then his sister started to get sick. And we're trying to figure out what's going on. And they had different symptoms than him. And everybody started acting kind of crazy. And when, I'm, when I say crazy, I don't mean like um, maybe we're all stressed because we have this chronic illness situation. I mean like legit crazy. Like our house at night was something like a psych ward. Like our children would stand over our beds and scream for no reason. We couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, our children would just sweat profusely. They were sweating through clothing, like maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a day. Um, they kept, you know, my, my son would kind of collapse on the ground in the fetal position and just hold himself and just moan and, and cry. He couldn't even talk anymore. He couldn't tell us what was going on. And they were always moving their mouths, and it was terrible. He had sores all over his hands and his feet, and no doctors could figure out what was wrong with him. They, they kept looking for adrenal tumors and brain tumors, and they did about every test we could possibly do. And then there was this one little indicator that came back, and it, it was like a long shot, but maybe this is the problem. And after about two months of searching, do you know how weird it is to leave a doctor and have a doctor tell you that your son doesn't have cancer, and you're mad about it? Because we're very clearly watching this little boy die, and no one has any answers. And it's driving us nuts. We just wanted an answer so we can heal it, so we can fix it. Something is wrong. Something is toxic. Something is broken. And finally, we found out um, through a whole series of God stories that the home we bought uh, had a massive chemical spill inside of it. The previous owner, um, and I, I need to tell you this because it's been officially litigated now, so the, the legal wording of this statement is, my lawyer argued that the previous owner, who happened to be a chemist, was responsible for the spill of 300 grams of raw elemental mercury on the floor of my basement. Okay. Maybe if you spilled mercury, you wouldn't know how deadly that is. But if you were a chemist, I bet you do know how deadly that is. I bet you should have called somebody and told them instead of selling the house to three little kids. My dog died. That always gets people. The sick kid, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said the dog died, and everyone's like, oh, not Chauncey Billups, the American Bulldog. <laughs> this is, this is uh, you with me? Here's what I need you to understand. 
my family over the last two years has been in this dramatic ordeal where we had to spend months and months getting detoxified from this mercury exposure that all five of us had to endure. And we had this long process called chelation of getting the toxins out of our body. And then we had this long legal battle because in one day, because this, our home was the spill, we were homeless and chronically ill and all of our possessions were lost because they were all exposed to this vaporized mercury. And in the same day, on the porch of my house, I called the insurance company and said, hey, I have a little problem. It's a good thing I pay you guys all this money. And they said, you're not covered for any of it. Any of it. That's how much coverage they gave. Yep. There comes a point in the story, right? God's people are great. We were rescued by the generosity of, of our community, and we were... Uh, everybody was okay. Nobody died. Every, everything worked out. It, the, the story's over now. But there came a point in time where we had to make a decision about what justice would look like. So we're going to win this case. And the, the question is put to us as a family, what does justice look like? Now, I'm a follower of Jesus. I understand that I, I, I hope... My sins aren't counted against me. I hope that, you know, when I sin, it's just a mistake. Are you with me? When someone sins against me, they're evil. But I want you, when I sin against you, to understand it was just an error. It was just a mistake. I'm actually a good person. I do the right thing. I do the best that I can. This is how we play the game of justice. And what it ends up doing is it kind of makes a mockery of grace. The hurt that you unleash in this world, the chaos that you are responsible for, there's a price for that. There's a penalty for it. Paul talking about the cosmic economy, this idea that, that you going against your created intention and living into your corrupted condition, you willfully being drugged through the mud that we call sin, he said the very penalty of that is death. This is the part we, we just want to quickly glance over that and celebrate again this beautiful, extravagant, unfailing covenant love. But there's a price. There's a tension between grace and justice. Can you follow me now? Um, this is where it becomes tough, right? Hosea has his wayward bride, We've been, this story is so powerful, it's so poignant, it's, it's hard to hear. Um, and he loves her, he really loves her, and she keeps turning to the very things that are going to hurt her. He keeps rescuing her from the situation of her toxicity, and she returns back to the site of the poisoning to breathe in those vapors that are going to be detrimental to her future and her flourishing. They're going to block her thriving. This is problematic on so many levels. Listen to this. This is in Hosea chapter 3. After all this time has gone on and, and just the, the drama that he's had to endure, God shows up to Hosea and says this. Um, he writes, The Lord said to me, Go and show your love to your wife again. Show your love to your wife again. Though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. What's the word for the way the Lord loves the Israelites? Chesed. Thank you. Chesed. Yes. 
Love her like that. Okay, this is the point where you're not feeling it yet. Because it matters. You know what I'm talking about? It matters here. If you were his friend, you would say something like, hey, I think you're in a toxic codependent relationship with this chick, Gomer. I think this is a pattern of abuse. I saw it on Oprah one time, and, and you should, I mean, like, you should talk to someone about this. This isn't really good for you or anyone. I mean, just, you don't need that kind of negativity in your life, man, you know? I can hear you giving that advice. God says, go back, love her. Don't just love her, accept her. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. (laughs) I'll be honest with you, I have no idea exegetically why that's there. (laughs) I looked, not one scholar gave me an adequate explanation for the mention of sacred raisin cakes. Just seems like a paltry little mention and compared to the other stuff, you know, like the sacred raisin cakes. Say it ain't so. <laughs> Sorry. So Hosea said, okay, I'm there. So he had to buy her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley, which is, this is the price of a slave. He has to redeem her Like, think at auction here. He has to buy her out of slavery. This is how far she's wandered. This is not the heartbreak of somebody who's offended by her behavior. It's the heartbreak of somebody that loves her so desperately and so deeply that he can't believe she's done this to herself. What are you doing? I want you home with me. I'm good. And he tells her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same toward you. Now, this, this, this is the language, again, of covenant, of hesed. I will show you fidelity. I expect you to show me fidelity. He's reinstituting this covenant. Guys, this is a beautiful thing. I need you to get this. I need you to really understand this. Because you have in front of you the offer of an infinite, inexhaustible source of grace that as often as you turn back to God, he will be there waiting to reinstitute the covenant, to be faithful to you, even though you've been unfaithful to him. And you could do it a hundred times and a hundred times he would still be waiting. See, we make this, this terrible mistake of thinking, well, that's easy then. There's a reset button. I hit the reset button, and it starts over again. But w- when we have that mentality, you're not grasping the weight. There's a price. There's a significance to this. Just because it's free doesn't mean it's cheap. It cost the life of the most beautiful human story that has ever been written. A life of, that, that, that made love into an artistic expression. A life that made wisdom his sole pursuit. A life that leveraged all the power he ever had for the sake of the powerless. That's the life that was given for you and for me. This is so important to get. It's so important to get. Um, this idea of Hosea going back to redeem Gomer... It would, not have, uh, it would not have sit very well with the original audience. The Israelites during that time, listen, they, they understand the law. 
The penalty for her is stoning. That's how this is, that's what justice looks like. He is showing her this unfavored, this weird, this undeserved grace. I mean, this is extravagant kind of grace. And it's not really part of their worldview. And we see this play out over and over and over again. By the day of Jesus, people had a really hard time with how accepting Jesus was. They kept waiting for him to put up the fences, and he didn't. He just kept tearing them down. He kept, you know, their religion had become this institution that amplified the distance between God and humanity. They had this construction of courtyards that would just separate people further and further out. And Jesus comes into their conception. He comes into their religious center, and he blows the whole thing up and says, you don't understand what this is about. I am a bridge builder, a, a gate crasher. I'm the one, you know, he would say this to the Pharisees, that, that you slam the door of the kingdom in people's faces and you yourselves will not enter. You're making religion into something that makes it too hard for people to find God and it magnifies their sin and it amplifies the distance and it silences the grace that they need to be called home. There's a tension. We gotta hold these two things together at the same time. We gotta be able to talk about justice. We gotta be able to talk about grace. And we have to do this courageously. This is gonna require your big boy pants. I'm preaching in sweatpants. Because I got a cast on. This is new, by the way. Do you like it? I just got it at the emergency room. Okay. So, there's a cost to grace because the distance between us and God is real. We put distance between us and God two ways, and Jesus told a story about this one time. Someone invited Jesus to dinner, which in Luke's gospel is kind of the pattern of how Jesus does his best preaching. People invite him to dinner. He sits down at the table, and he's the worst dinner guest ever. Um, you know, like, you know, at, at your house, you guys had that thing at Thanksgiving where your mom is like to your dad, do not talk about politics at Thanksgiving dinner. Your hipster little brother's coming. And anyway... No one knows you don't get anywhere with hipsters, or fathers for that matter. But here we go. Jesus at this dinner, he insults his hosts. He tells them that they invited the wrong people. They're like, who are the right people? He's like, the poor, the lame, the blind, the broken. What? And somebody trying to cut the tension makes this comment like, but won't it be great when we're all in heaven? And Jesus is like, you don't know the first thing about heaven. <laughs> and he's like, oh, awkward, Right? And he tells these three stories. These stories, you know, we, we, we've talked about some of these this weekend in, in parables and videos, this idea of the, the lost sheep, the lost coin. And this is maybe the best parable Jesus ever told. I think it's one of the best parables in all of literature. So parables have a literary form. I need you to understand this. When you're reading a parable, uh, this is one of the most misinterpreted parables ever. I did a lot of my graduate work on the parables of Jesus. When you're reading a parable, you are constantly asking the question, who's caught by the joke? These are supposed to be deliberately surprising. There's a reversal at the end that the original audience would have been caught by. They'd have been like, oh, oh you like draw me in, draw me in, draw me in. Like an M. Night Shyamalan movie back when he was good, okay? Like there's this big reversal. I'm sorry if you're an M. Night Shyamalan fan. That was mean. See, I appreciate your artistry, M. Night. You keep trying to make good movies. We'll get you back to form someday. I believe in you. You, you know what it is for me, guys? Avatar, The Last Airbender. It's unforgivably bad. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? Best cartoon in the history of cartoons. Bomb that thing. See, now I get some amens. Where you been all weekend? All right, here we go. <laughs> the only time you guys are shouting me down... I talked about my evil girlfriend in high school and Avatar The Last Airbender. Just keeping score up here. Okay. 
Listen to what Jesus said. He continues. There was a man who had two sons. How many sons? Okay, what's this parable about? A man and what? His two sons. How many times have you heard this parable called something different than that? Who has a Bible that the heading actually says, the prodigal son? Adventures in missing the point. That's not what the parable's about. How many sons does he have? This is the parable of the lost sons. They're both lost. Who's the audience of this parable? It's the Pharisees. They're sitting at the table puffed up in pride, and he's going to scandalize them with the tail of the first son just to stick them with the tail of the second son, and he's going to leave a cliffhanger ending, and they're all going to be wondering, do I even understand the very love of God? I think I do, but maybe I don't. Here we go. There was a man, he had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And he longed at rock bottom to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And this is a classic story, right? He's living into this hedonistic narrative our culture provides that you can find some level of satisfaction in sin. It's the same temptation that Cain had when he sat across in envy from his brother in that field. It's the same temptation that that, that Gomer experienced being enticed into this story of unfaithfulness. There is a God who is faithful and loves us perfectly. And there is this corrupted condition that leads us astray. And he lives full on into it. He just chases the story. And so often is the case in in the ways of of our culture. He comes to the point where he's tasted, he's seen, and he's not so sure he's happy with what he got in return because sin, man, it seduces you. It draws you out with the promise of satisfaction. It ultimately delivers only slavery. He came to his senses his father did a lot right. And he begins to do what many of us do. He begins this inner dialogue between, more of an inner monologue because no one else is there, I guess. Him and the mouse in his pocket. So his inner monologue. And he says, like, what, what am I doing? I don't deserve the love and the favor that I've been shown, but maybe I can some way earn a seat to grovel at his feet. I can somehow find a place among his slaves. And so he says, how many of my father's hired hands and servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. So I'm going to set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now this is what you need to understand about the culture of the ancient world. We, in our culture, have most of our conception about guilt as individualistic. If you do something wrong, it's because, you know, it's your, it's your issue. And your parents could even say something like, well, yeah, my kid did this thing and he's a knucklehead. Or your brother could do something wrong. In the culture of, the, of, of Palestine in antiquity, and matter of fact, all the way back to the ancient Near East, that culture was primarily a shame culture. What that means is this, if you screw up, it reflects not just on you, not just onto your family, but onto your village 
and your tribe and your nation. This is a deep-seated issue. If you need to understand this today, you can still find this in Eastern cultures today. There's a high shame culture in countries like Japan and and, and China. This idea is almost like, dude, don't, don't bring dishonor to my family, and Mulan's coming out, so we'll learn all about that all over again, right? There's a whole song about it in Mulan, which is actually kind of accurate. So listen, what I need you to understand is the whole village, the minute that boy leaves home, the whole village says, you're dead to me. You're dead. You're dead to me. Matter of fact, all of them have now been given the right to exact justice upon him. That's how shame culture works. So if he's going to go home, he's got to walk down the street Every one of those neighbors, every one of those villagers, and I know this was a big village. Do you want to know why I know that? Ask me why I know that. Because the father killed a fatted calf to reconcile the whole village to him. There's no leftovers in the ancient world. You would never make such a display of wealth if you're not going to invite the whole town. This is like a wedding banquet of reconciliation. Well, you, whatever you butcher that day has to be eaten that day. They can't preserve the meat in any way. This is like months and months of wages that he's putting on display. When he kills the cow, it's because the whole town comes to be reconciled to this lost son. You, you following me now? Okay. Now, listen to why this makes so much sense. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Why is he run all the way out? Ask me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because he is going to bear the shame of reconciliation himself. He's not going to make his son do the walk of shame. He hikes up his man dress and he runs. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. This is so undignified. This is terrible. What he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to make it as easy as possible for you to return to me. I want you home. And he's been waiting expectantly, watching the horizon. He runs down the road. He reconciles with his son. He puts a cloak on him and a ring on him, and he walks him back down the street so the whole village can be reconciled to him at the same moment. They can all be drawn into this story of one family. This guy is back home now, and he throws this banquet to make sure everybody understands that whatever shame, whatever needed to happen for reconciliation has been, ha- has been done, the price has been paid, receive home our lost son. Are you still following me? This is so critically important. This would have been scandalous to an ancient Jewish audience because this first way you can run from God is you run from your father in outward rebellion, right? Like, like this, this you know, younger son. He, he does something terrible. I get it. It's scandalous. He shouldn't have done it. This is really insulting. He asked for his inheritance early. He's essentially saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. I mean, this is awful behavior. And when he comes home, here's his father still waiting. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's focused on his performance. And the father said to him, Quick! 
bring the best robe and put it on him, put a finger uh, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they, the whole town, begin to celebrate. He's reconciling to this boy. Um, this is the point in the story where a lot of times preachers stop. They talk, they talk to teenagers about being wayward and coming home. You don't be rebellious. Come back to Jesus. Let's repent and get it all. We'll do an altar call at the end. But this isn't the audience of the parable. This is the group of people that the audience of the parable are upset about. Jesus is spending his time loving on sinners and tax collectors, spending his time with the riffraff and, and those who are un, unclean and unworthy. And the, the professional religious people are ticked about it. And so he, Jesus continues with, with the sin of the, the older brother and he draws them into the tension and he's got them now where he wants them. And that's where the parable ends. Listen to this. This is the second way you can run from God is you can resist your father through inward rebellion. You can run from him in outward rebellion. You can. You can make a good show of your sin. You can show everybody how hedonistic you can be. But it's just as distancing, maybe more so, to resist the, the, the father who loves you and the family you're called to love in some kind of weird spiritual pride and judgmental attitude. You're resisting the chesed, the, the covenant fidelity that he's given to you and called you to exhibit and show to this world. Meanwhile, the older son was also in the field when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The whole village is here celebrating reconciliation. Now, you don't know this about the principle of the firstborn, but the idea of the firstborn is that this firstborn got a double portion of the family estate, and with that came the responsibility of reconciliation for all of the family, that this firstborn son is supposed to be the agent of reconciliation. When, when the apostle Paul says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, that is the phrase he's using, is this rabbinical idea of the firstborn son who's supposed to be out there finding the lost sheep. He's supposed to be out there. Listen, what was required of this guy in the, the, the peasant culture of ancient Palestine was that he go find his brother and bring him home. He wasn't even looking. He's the kind of guy that has the attitude, good, I'm glad he's gone. Has a problem anyway. Screwing up his life. What's wrong with him? Everybody's partying. And I want you to see this. That first son was focused on his performance, and the father said, No, I care about your presence. You're home now. The second son, same problem. He's going to give this long list of how well he's performed. And the father's going to say, I'm not worried about what you're doing for me. I'm worried that you're mine. He's going to say, you are my son. You are always with me. Your presence is what matters. Your nearness to me is what matters. You're mine. And the same way he ran out to meet his wayward son on the road, the father is going to leave the banquet bearing the shame of his older son's religious pride to invite 
his older son into the party. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. I'm not going. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Again, this is shameful behavior. You shouldn't do this. That older son has already shirked his duties as, 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 as the firstborn. He had an obligation because of chesed. He had a covenant priority. He should have done something. He didn't do it. He's pleading now. He's begging. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. The problem with many followers of Jesus that live into this legalistic performance-based thing you're acting like a slave, not a son. You're acting like you deserve all that you're getting. You don't get to earn it. It's keeping you from it. I'm slaving for you. Look what I'm doing. I'm doing all these things. Yeah, I never disobeyed your orders. I checked all the boxes. I got it all right. I'm a rule follower. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Notice he didn't include his family in that. But when this son of yours, not my brother, your son, who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Listen to the father's invitation. My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now there's a cliffhanger ending here. We don't learn whether or not that brother came into the party. It's because at that very moment, Jesus is sitting at the table with a bunch of people with the attitude of that older brother. And he's looking around wondering what they're going to choose to do. You guys, there's a cost to your sin. There's a cost to your spiritual pride. There's a cost to your external rebellion. There's a cost to your inward resistance. There is a cost to the distance that you put in between you and God. And I want to make this abundantly clear. There is no distance between you and God except for what you put there. He wants everything for you. He wants everything. He wants you to delight in him, to find pleasure in him, to find satisfaction and fulfillment in him. He wants to, to lavish you with grace and restore you with love. He wants you to become someone in the light of his mercy. You could never become on your own. And it is on him. He will close the gap. He will bridge the distance. He will bear the shame. He's the one who will meet you out on the street to reconcile you to everybody that comes in. He will even shield you from the judgment of his people. You have to understand me here. The heart of our Father God is such that he wants to make it as easy as possible for everybody, regardless of their story, to draw near to him. And maybe the more dangerous kind of distance that you can put between you and God is not the outward rebellion, it's the inward resistance. It's this attitude of pride that says, you know what, I know that I've sinned, but I'm going to earn my way back into your favor. There's two ways you can run from God. But at the end of the day, the Father's love, said, always invites you home. 
I don't know which brother you identify with. I don't know how this works for you. I don't know where you find yourself in this story, but I know that the, the love of our Father is so good. It's so amazing. It's unbelievable. This Father's dramatic behavior is what makes this parable so shocking and so powerful. It communicates so much about the heart of our Father. We tend sometimes to think of God as angry, and maybe that's because we see people as angry. And, and, and this pop culture Christianity that gets peddled around us, this idea of like, everything's okay, it's kind of all willy-nilly. What I'm saying is, you have to hold these two realities together, that you have a God that loves you unconditionally, and at the same time, your brokenness has an immense cost. And just because something is free doesn't mean it's cheap. There's a huge cost to your rebellion. There's a huge cost to your resistance. There's a huge cost to your self-righteousness. And that price has been paid in the cross of Christ. This is the moment for you to respond. This is the time where you finally say, okay, I see clearly for the first time. I see clearly. It's not free comes to us free, but it's costly. We don't have to pay this price because it's been paid for us, but you've got to receive this. You've been invited home. Um, for years, I talk to people about Jesus. I mean, I've been doing this a long time. And often when I find somebody who's kind of like resistant, this idea of like, ah, that's not for me. What's happening in the kingdom, what's happening right now with, with, with the people of God all over this world is, is nothing short of remarkable. Uh, there is a family of people seeking to build heaven on earth. There is a family of people learning to walk in grace without shame. There's a family of people who find pretending humorous because why would I pretend in a culture of grace? And there's, there's this other group of people that are running around parading as if they get it, as if they see what Jesus is about, and they're going through the motions, and it's, it's just, honestly, it looks kind of plastic and kind of icky, and you're not really sure what's going on, but it's not quite right, and they're focused on performance instead of presence. They're focused on how good they can follow these arbitrary rules instead of how close they can get to the very heart of the Father, how well they can learn to love and be loved by Jesus, their Savior. My prayer for all of us, is that we would come home. Come to the party. Don't let your pride keep you on the outside. You are loved. This is chesed. This is it. It's that God will close the distance between you and he, no matter how great the gap that you try and keep putting there He'll find a way to bridge that gap. He'll find a way to close the distance. You are loved with the unrelenting and unyielding, perfect love of God. Let's pray. Master, we love you. Um, thank you, God, for helping me get through this with a severed Achilles tendon. It was an expensive mistake. Sorry. Hey, I just pray for students in this room. Let them be real with you in their heart. We hear your spirit asking like you asked those first human beings in the garden, where are you? 
we hear you asking us, like you asked Cain so long ago, where is your brother? We hear you, God, because we love so imperfectly. Forgive us for pretending. Forgive us for running and for resisting. Because you're so good. Remind us of your goodness, God, that we might come home. We deserve to be less than your slaves, but you call us your sons and your daughters. Lavish us with grace, favor, and mercy. Thank you for your covenant love. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Life After Camp episode. Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.